Globally, mental health is a one billion person problem. In this episode, my co-host Anne and I drive up to Oxford and we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Willem Kuchen, who heads up the Oxford Mindfulness Centre. When we teach mindfulness in, in the context of mindfulness-based programs, whether that's to children in schools or whether it's in the context of the health service to people with recurrent depression, what we're teaching is, is for people to, to stop and become more familiar with their minds and with their bodies and to begin to learn different ways of being with the world. Now, where that will take people, you can never quite predict. Now, in the context of depression, it, the intention is to take people to learning a set of skills that they can learn to stay well in the long term. But I have certainly in my own life and heard from many people that people take that in all sorts of interesting directions. So my answer of what is mindfulness is that it has four parts to it. The first is that actually it's just a natural capacity that we all have. Everybody has an innate natural capacity to be mindful and it can be trained. But it's a natural capacity that's trainable. That's the first part. The second part, that it has a sort of quality of attention and awareness. That what we are talking about with mindfulness is being able to attend to things quite intentionally, quite deliberately. So I can choose in this moment to attend entirely into my conversation with you two guys. Now, this young woman had suffered from depression. And right on the back of that thought of this is a pleasant moment came the thought, this won't last followed quickly by another thought, which was, I don't deserve to be happy. Mm. And then whoosh, a whole bunch of other thoughts. When we say mindfulness is backed by the latest science, it's the Oxford Mindfulness Centre that is playing a huge role. We've been interested in the effective use of mindfulness in people with depression and other debilitating illnesses, which adversely affects their mental health and happiness. So we mustn't let the enthusiasm of mindfulness overtake the science. And Dr. Kukun and his work is ensuring that science and the research is growing at an exponential rate. I'm your host, Gi Hung, on my continuing mission to help as many people as possible organically. So if you enjoy the conversation and benefit from it, show some love, share it with someone and pay it forward. Now the website's just been updated, so come check it out. The videos, meditations and full podcast archive at mindfulnews.uk. I thought it would be a great idea if you could just tell us a bit about your story, how you became to be the head of the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, how you were first introduced to mindfulness mm -hmm. and to Mark Williams mm -hmm. uh, and your own, yeah, in your own mindfulness journey, mm -hmm. if you like. So when I was initially training as a, a young clinical psychologist, young scientist, um, my research area was depression, mood disorders. And at that time, mindfulness, meditation, the idea of going on retreats really wasn't in the mainstream at all. And in fact, for me to have talked about that in my professional life would have been, professional suicide might be too strong, but it wouldn't have been a good thing for a young scientist to have done. So I used to uh, go on retreats, have a mindfulness practice of my own, and that was very much part of my kind of personal life and was very important to me as a, as a young person finding my way in the world. And meanwhile, I was developing my science around depression and uh, cognitive behavioral approaches to depression. And I went to a conference in the mid-1990s, which was called East Meets West, and uh, John Kabat-Zinn was there, Francisco Varela was there, and John Teasdale was there. And John Teasdale took me um, uh, to the bar and bought me a drink and said, um, you know, you're, you're interested in mindfulness and you're interested in depression. There is a way of bringing these two together. And it was a wonderful, wonderful moment where two things that were very important to me, my work and uh, mindfulness in my own life, 
were able to come together. And from that point on, my research has all been around mindfulness and mindfulness is a way of helping people with recurrent depression find ways of staying well in the long term. I was, you know, you mentioned being a young person, mm-hmm. finding your way in the world. That's yeah. so pretty much similar to our story, mm-hmm. you know, how we came across mindfulness and looking at sort of how mindfulness is presented as a way to help people with clinical depression and yeah. in order to sort of the scientific aspect. Yeah. And quite separate from its sort of Eastern roots as sort of very much tied in with the philosophical aspects mm-hmm. of, the, say, you know, the Buddhist traditions. I yeah. mean, we're not Buddhists ourselves. Uh, do you think there are implications, like philosophically mm-hmm. speaking, mm-hmm. with mindfulness as a way of life, besides from the fact that it's, say, as effective as say, taking drugs yeah. for helping depression. Yeah. There's something to be commented on about mm. that. It's a really interesting question. And I think when we teach mindfulness in, in the context of mindfulness-based programs, whether that's to children in schools or whether it's in the context of the health service to people with recurrent depression, what we're teaching is is for people to, to stop and become more familiar with their minds and with their bodies and to begin to learn different ways of being with the world. Now, where that will take people, you can never quite predict. Now, in the context of depression, the intention is to take people to learning a set of skills that they can learn to stay well in the long term. But I have certainly in my own life and heard from many people that people take that in all sorts of interesting directions. The very process of becoming more aware and more responsive in the world leads people to ask questions about their relationships, about their words, Mm -hmm. about their vocations, about their values. But that's not necessarily the intention. Yes. But the awareness has that kind of revealing and transforming quality. And what I think is so, I think, powerful about mindfulness-based programs is that that journey is at the level of the individual and their experience. So they are learning from their own mindfulness practice and Mm -hmm. from their own application of that practice in the world about what leads to less suffering, greater happiness, greater effectiveness. But that's not necessarily what you're setting out to do in a kind of didactic way, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. So why don't we, for our our listeners, viewers, perhaps if you could give a definition of what mindfulness is. Mm, Great, great question. It's such an open question, and I understand, but I would like to ask that question again at the end. Yeah, yeah. But if we we could give like a, you know, like a textbook answer that you would give someone asks you, what is mindfulness? So my answer of what is mindfulness is that it has four parts to it. The first is that actually it's just a natural capacity that we all have. Everybody has an innate natural capacity to be mindful and it can be trained, but it's a natural capacity that's trainable. That's the first part. The second part that it has a sort of quality of attention and awareness that what we are talking about with mindfulness is being able to attend to things quite intentionally, quite deliberately. So I can choose in this moment to attend entirely into my conversation with you two guys. And I can be aware of the sounds and the wider room. So there's something about an innate capacity. There's something about attention and awareness. And I think the third part is really, really key. And it's about something about the sort of attitudes that we're cultivating. It's not cold. It's not about a cold attention. It's about curiosity. It's about patience. It's about balance and equanimity. And it's about kindness. Mm -hmm. So that kind of landscape of attention gets, I don't know, imbued with all of those kind of qualities. And the final part is what we were just talking about is it actually has an aim or an intention. It's not ethically neutral at all. The intention is to lead a better life. 
at some level or with depression to learn skills to stay well in the long term. Mm -hmm. Or the way it's taught in schools is to give young people the skills to better manage their minds and their worlds. Yeah. So it's those, I know that's quite a long answer, but I think it's really important that all of those different components of mindfulness mm. are part of any good definition of mindfulness. Yeah. And as you learn mindfulness and you get into to meditation, I guess every time you hear that response, it will mean something new to yeah. you, right? Because it's an, an ongoing process. It's not you tell someone that once and, yep, I've got it. Because you can't understand mindfulness just by definition. You actually have to live it, learn, go through the tough times, and, it's, yes. and also continue to increase your understanding. Absolutely. But it's a continual, continual unfolding of understanding. The mind and body are extremely extraordinarily rich and complex and actually that deepening understanding is part of what mindfulness practice is about yeah and you know that the saying is that you know if you don't examine your life then it's, it's almost not worth living mm -hmm. and you know we found that practicing mindfulness and then trying to discuss the questions around it has mm -hmm. you know helped be that piece where we can really understand well what is our purpose mm -hmm. in life mm -hmm. and you know why are we here mm -hmm. But when I try and have that conversation with someone that hasn't been practicing mindfulness or, you know, hasn't really taken the time to understand the relationship with their thoughts mm -hmm. and who they really are and their ego, mm -hmm. it's almost a very difficult conversation to yeah. have. How do you face that problem? And is, do you explain it one way to some people and another way to different people? Yeah. And so I think it comes back to the intention of what you're trying to do. So I'll just give you an example from my own life is when my daughters were very young. I remember one night. It's a very kind of painful memory for me, which is um, I was reading my five, six-year-old daughter a bedtime story. So I'd had a busy day at work. I'd come home and I was putting her to bed and I read her a bedtime story. And um, I got to the end of the chapter and I was just about to say goodnight. And she wanted to talk about the story I just read her. Mm. Quite understandable. Yeah. I couldn't actually remember a single word of what I just read. I'd read the whole chapter yeah. on automatic pilot mm -hmm. and my mind was actually still back at work. So here I have a very precious time with my daughter and I wasn't actually present. Mm. And that for me was a moment where actually bringing mindfulness into my relationship with my daughter is so important. I mean, one of the most important things I feel I can do in my life is to be a parent and to be present feels really important. So that was kind of a, a personal moment. There's one moment I, I remember a former client of mine who was the mother of a young child. And she, what we do with the eight-week mindfulness program is we ask people in week two, between week two and week three, to go away and record a pleasant moment in their week every day. And really with mindfulness to unpack that moment in terms of what was I thinking? What was I feeling? What was happening in my moment, in my body? And what was happening in the world around me? And she was pushing a toddler on the swing. And the, the toddler was just delighted. He was very happy and laughing and chortling. And she thought to herself, ah, this is my moment to write on, the, on mm -hmm. the spreadsheet and take back to my class at the end of the week as an example of a pleasant moment. Now, this young woman had suffered from depression. And right on the back of that thought of this is a pleasant moment came the thought, this won't last, followed quickly by another thought, which was, I don't deserve to be happy. Mm. And then whoosh, a whole bunch of other thoughts. I'm going to mess up my son. My son's going to have as messed up a life as I've got as well. And then all of a sudden, just like me, when I was reading to my daughter, she's no longer present to her own child. And she's overcome with all of this negative thinking, this sense of inner collapse. And she described that moment with a 
beautiful, beautiful metaphor. And the metaphor was, it was a wrecking ball thought. That first thought was a wrecking ball thought. And the reason I love that metaphor is because with a wrecking ball, if it hits a building full on, it's incredibly powerful. But if you stand back from a wrecking ball, it just travels through space Mm. and will eventually run out of energy. And so what she was able to do and what mindfulness enabled her to do was to be able to see that as a thought, label it as a thought, a wrecking ball thought, stand back from it and take the energy, take the, um, the destructive energy out of it. And that was a transformative moment for her. And potentially a transformative moment for her relationship with her child as well, yeah. because she was able to go back to being there for, for her toddler. And I think one of the key things about mindfulness that really struck me when I first started practicing was being able to notice thoughts as I sat down to yeah. do my practice. Yeah. So that in those moments yeah. where a negative moment, when I can realize it as a thought, go, oh, mm-hmm. it's that thought. Mm-hmm. It's that thing that I've been practicing every day. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, with that nip it in the bud, mm-hmm. so to speak, you know, yep. let, remove all that, yep. that energy yep. from it. And then you're able to continue yep. with the rest of the day. That thought might come again 10 seconds later mm-hmm. or a minute mm-hmm. later, but at least you've now got the couple of these tools that yep. can, you'll start to make little bits of progress. So it's that moment of realization that this is a thought and being able to see it as just a thought. And so for many, many people, of course, that's not their reality. Thoughts are just experienced as a stream of reality. Yes. And that's what mindfulness enables people to do is to first be able to recognize that, allow those to be there with those qualities I was talking about of curiosity, of interest, of equanimity, of kindness, and step back from them. And then they, thoughts are impermanent. And which, you know, leads me to the topic of the second arrow, which you mentioned, because there is actually another analogy that Anne and I frequently use, and we love to talk about it. And I'd love, you know, your take on it as well. It's the idea of um, the black and white square mm-hmm. on a chessboard. Mm-hmm. So the way that the story is set up is, you know, imagine life mm-hmm. to be a chessboard where black and white squares, where the black represents, you know, the stuff that doesn't go well in your life. Mm-hmm. And the white squares are good stuff. But as you begin this game of life, someone covers the board mm-hmm. with a sheet and you have to traverse. Mm-hmm. And along the way, the odds of you making it without landing on the black square, you know, is virtually nil. So I guess the first point of that is, when you do land on one, you know, not to be so surprised or not to, you know, because, you know, why be so surprised? You're, you've expected this mm-hmm. along the way. But what really was profound for me and Anne is that when we were looking on this, this chessboard, but what really was the black square? Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, oh, shit, I've got a cold now or I've just broken my leg or something. That could be interpreted as that black square moment. But every moment that follows afterwards and every other thought that then follows needn't be a black square. Mm -hmm. But we realize that we do that in life a lot. We turn so many events into black squares. Mm -hmm. And one part that we enjoyed was, is the process of turning black squares into white squares. Mm -hmm. And we really enjoyed that analogy. When you mentioned the second arrow, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, there's that primary thing, which is the incident itself. Maybe like when my granddad died. You know, death in the family, probably one of the worst that you can have as far as the black squares are concerned. But then I was able, I mean, I, you cry and you weep. But when I was in the office where being sad and being and crying was no use to me, mm-hmm. being every time that, that thought came in, that just take a breath. And then it was no longer a black square day. I turned it into a white square. Yeah. So perhaps with the, the second arrow, maybe mm-hmm. could you comment on that? It's lovely the way you've put that. And of course, 
I mean, the first thing I'd want to say is I think one of the misconceptions about mindfulness is this idea that there isn't the reality of real adversity for many people in their life. And you've given some examples of, you know, bereavements, but there, there is just a reality that some people live with economic deprivation, unemployment, ill health, and direct physical pain. So I don't want to minimize in that in any sense. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right that the second arrow of what the mind brings to those experiences is what the inquiry of mindfulness is about. And I think the way mindfulness-based programs are set up is they are set up in a way to enable people to really learn from their experience. And that can be really transformative because white squares, the joyful moments of life, so you've talked about the black squares, but many, many people have like a sort of Teflon layer over the white squares. Mm. That's nice. That's great. Like food. Yes. How many people actually really stop to savor nice food or just food or relationships or interactions? So the whites, it applies equally to what we think of as the white and the black. So in a way, if you just leave the white and the black, because the mind just very, very quickly says pleasant, unpleasant. Yes neutral, let's not pay attention to this. And what mindfulness is inviting us to do is just at that very first contact point with experience, try and bring that attention, awareness, curiosity, interest, and balance. And actually what we thought was there may not be there at all. Mm -hmm. So you may have heard of this, but with many of the mindfulness-based programs, they start with eating a raisin. Mm -hmm. And they invite people to bring all five senses to the raisin. And people very often describe I had no idea that the moment I bite into the raisin, if it's a particular kind of raisin, the explosion of sweetness mm-hmm. in the mouth and the way that kind of just is resonates through the body is extraordinary. So it's the white squares. And then what do we do with that afterwards? Oh, that was interesting. I'll go home and I'll pick up a whole bunch of chocolate and just eat it and not taste it. So it's that, it's just that exploration. You're absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely right. And it's at very trivial levels. But it's, I think it's also, as I think you were alluding to earlier, it's at more profound levels too. Mm-hmm. So it's the level of you know food to relationships to the job I'm in. Yeah. When I really stop and I'm aware of what it's like to go into work, to be at work, to leave work, is this, to use your, is this a white square? Is it a black square? Is it something I want to be doing? Yeah. So yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a rich, rich exploration. You know, we represent action for happiness, you know, where happiness is the, the key theme for us. This podcast is sponsored by Be Present Coaching, upskilling business professionals with mindfulness tools. Check out bepresent.uk for more information on corporate courses and guided mind exercises. I guess, could you go through some of the the scientific studies or the, the research that's been done recently to kind of demonstrate the link with mindfulness and happiness? Yeah. So I'm going to turn that slightly on its head and say that I work primarily with depression. Depression, it has two parts to it. One is where the negative system really comes online. Negative thoughts, uh, loss of pleasure, all of that comes online. But at the same time, what's happening is the whole capacity for pleasure, the capacity for joy gets knocked out. And I think the long-term journey of recovery from depression has three parts to it. The first is about being able to work with those negative thoughts, being able to work with those negative experiences and to stand back from them not get sucked down by them. I think the second part is really key and it's about compassion. And by compassion, I mean being able to meet difficulty with kindness and patience. 
So in the example of the young mother I was describing, to see that wrecking ball with some degree of kindness for herself, mm-hmm. some compassion for herself. And I think that compassion is a key part of the journey out of depression. But to come to answer your question, I think there is also something about cultivating and growing the positive system. Mm-hmm. So over time, actually being able to really take the Teflon off the joyous, the pleasant experiences and really savor those in life. So in a way, that kind of aspect of the mind is also being cultivated. So I think those are kind of the three parts in my mind. And these are kind of questions, I guess, that the research needs to address. We know that depression is characterized by negative thinking, negative behavioral patterns. We also know that compassion is a key part of the recovery process. And I think the next 10 years, we'll see some really interesting research about whether the cultivation of that positive system Mm -hmm. for joy, for example, is part of the long-term recovery from depression. And what is the, um, is there a natural progression between compassion of self and compassion for others? Does one lead to the other? It's a great, great question. It's a great question. And there's different views about this. There are different views about this. My view is, and as a scientist, when I say view, I always try to turn view into a, a research program that can then be tested. But my view of compassion is that In its bare elements, compassion is compassion is compassion, whether it's for self or for others. And in partly the self-other is broken down a little bit. Let me say what I mean by that is that we recognize suffering. We have some resonance with that suffering. So these are the kind of phases I see in compassion. So we recognize suffering. We have some resonance with that um, suffering. And then we have some impulse Mm sometimes turn into behavior, but not always, some impulse to reduce that suffering. Now, for me, that process makes no difference whether it's me with my own suffering or it's suffering I see in you or anyone else. It's still that recognition. I can feel some resonance with that and I want to reach out and do something with this. The reason I think folks with depression particularly struggle with that difference between self and other compassion is very many people with depression have a real, uh, what's the word, a real blockage with being able to turn compassion towards themselves. Mm -hmm. My colleague and friend, Kristen Neff, describes this together with her colleague, um, Christopher Germer, as backdraft. Mm -hmm. So if you open the door with somebody with a long history of adversity and abuse and depression and ask them to put compassion in there, what can happen is actually you get a backdraft of self-criticism and self-loathing and self-destruction. And what she and Christopher Germer have done is very skillfully think about what conditions you need to put in place to support somebody with an abuse history or a really strong inner critic to bring compassion towards themselves. Because those folks can actually quite easily bring compassion compassion towards others, but really struggle to bring it towards themselves. So it's very skillful work and done well can be incredibly healing, but done badly can actually create a backdraft. And what is the current situation with mental health in the UK and and depression? How prevalent is it and how big of an issue? Within the UK, people talk about um, one in five people at some point in their lifetime will suffer from depression or a common mental health problem. If you take that globally, and you think about at any one time, you can think about it as a one billion person problem. If you just stop and think about that, one billion people at any one time in the world will have some form of mental health 
problem that potentially could be helped by some of the approaches, the mental health approaches that we have. So what's the difference between me splitting up with a, a girlfriend and going through, you know, weeks of really, you know, real sadness versus what you, what you call those one in five people having depression? Is that similar? Would that count as that one, you know, at one point in my life? It's a great question. And I think there's, you know, one, we could have an hour long conversation about just that. Again, I think it's really unhelpful to pathologize or to make abnormal the normal, <laughs> you know, grief following a loss, sadness when something happens to us, anger. These are the, the range of normal emotions. And I think part of what mindfulness is about is allowing, is enabling people to recognize and allow and be with the range of normal emotions, both positive and negative. So it's not about not being sad and not being angry, not feeling feelings of disappointment or shame. I think they in a nutshell, become mental health problems when the second arrow, to use that language of the mind, gets overly involved. And suddenly, you know, we split up with our girlfriend and instead of just a sense of sadness, it's like layers of thinking and belief and view. Creating more black squares. Can create more black squares. Yeah, so with depression, the kind of narratives I would hear in depression would be along the lines of, I'm a worthless human being. I don't deserve to be in a relationship. If people discover the real me, they'll reject me. Now, people all have negative thoughts, but when those negative thoughts really get ingrained, that can become depression or anxiety. Um, and that person then becomes withdrawn or puts on a facade in the world, which is not their real facade. So I think it's really important to make that distinction between the, the kind of range of normal experience and then the way that can actually, with the second arrow, if you like, of the mind creating suffering or, you know, really exacerbating and worsening suffering um, with, uh, to use that language, the second arrows of suffering. Is this coming to a point where mindfulness can be a core element in the curriculum, in the education system? Yeah, well, I, I come back to my earlier point. That kind of depends on what the science says. If what we find is that this is a great way for kids to learn these skills and it does change the trajectory of their lives, that's a very compelling case for it to be part of the curriculum. Yeah. But if it doesn't, <laughs> then there'll be some learning in that too. And I think that's the key, that's the key point. And but I think asking so, the right questions and testing to it's, the right it's things. the right question and then using robust methods to answer those questions. Yeah. So we don't yet know. There's lots of promising evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said about the enthusiasm running the head of the evidence. Yes, yeah. And Claire Kelly, when we spoke to her, was quite cautious yeah. in claim, you know, what, what the, yeah. making claims that are sort of not sort of backed up. By the scientists, yeah. 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 But what I would say about these developments is the ones that are really showing traction are where people have taken a huge amount of care in developing the curricula. So the mindfulness curriculum that we're using is the mindfulnessschools.b curriculum. And it took the guys who developed that, Chris Cullen, Richard Burnett, and uh, Chris O'Neill, I think about five or six years of standing in front of classes of 30 kids, trying things out. And the You're kids tweaking it all along tweaking the way. Tweaking it. Yeah. And yeah. kids are an honest, you know, you talk about a focus group or some kind of feedback, yeah. you know, right? Because you they'll give it to you real, yeah. They'll give it to you real. So that curriculum is a curriculum that most teachers can teach and most kids find acceptable. Now, whether it actually has other effects other than being enjoyable and acceptable, 
That's still an outstanding question. But what is to the enormous credit of those people is that they have really, really developed something that teachers can teach. And that's no small feat because it's taught by mainstream teachers, not by experts who are coming from elsewhere. It's taught by mainstream teachers. And it's taught in a way that makes things really acceptable. And I'll give you just two examples. One example is um, what they call the Fofbok practice. You know, Fofbok, it's kind of, people hear the word Fofbok. I never heard that word before. That's kind of interesting. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Well, it means feet on floor, bottoms on chair. Mm -hmm. Kids get that. 11, 12, 13, 14 year old kids go, I'm fofbok. That makes sense. Let's start the lesson with a fofbok. That's kind of, kind of clever to come up with that. Another one they came up with, which a lot of kids like, is the thought buses idea. We have thoughts. We've talked about this already, right? We're standing at a bus stop. And a bit like all the buses, I mean, you're heading home from school at the end of the day, you don't have to get on every single bus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can actually choose which bus you're going to get on. So if the bus comes along that says, I haven't done enough revision for all my GCSEs, I'm going to really flunk my GCSEs, maybe I shouldn't turn up or maybe I should get a whatever. That's a thought bus. Now, it may or may not be true, right? <laughs> but it's a thought bus. And whether the kid chooses to get on that thought bus, so what they've done is they've really developed a whole range of practices, video clips, resources, materials that kids can relate to. And I think that's incredibly smart and incredibly clever. Okay. Yeah. Good, good. Uh, so just one final question. Yeah. Um, it's a question that we ask on the Action for Happiness course in the first week, mm -hmm. which kind of tees us up for the rest of the eight weeks. But yeah. what really matters in life for you? For me personally? Yeah. Great question. I think what really matters for me more and more with time is actually making a positive difference for other people, whether that's students that I work with or patients that I work with or colleagues that I work with in my immediate circle or in terms of my science, doing science that will actually have an impact and make a difference. So I'm very proud of um, a body of work that suggests that mindfulness-based cognitive therapy might provide an alternative for the literally millions of people who are on antidepressants. So to provide that choice, that option for people, feels like a piece of work that is of value and of benefit to other people. And the same thing, you know, when I see my children or my colleagues thriving and I think, have I played some small part in enabling that to happen? That gives me great joy. Wonderful. If they want to find out more about your work and get in touch, how can they do that? Uh, the Oxford Mindfulness Centre. So we have a website and that describes all of the work that we do. Okay. Well, well thank you very much for doing this. We're, we're truly honoured. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Really great thank to uh, connect you. with you and to do this interview. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for making it this far and showing your support and love to the podcast. A big thanks again to Be Present Coaching for their support. Find out more about their masterclass mindfulness courses and free guided meditations at bepresent.uk. Bepresent.uk. I'm your host, Guy, and this is the Mindful News Podcast. If you've taken away something from today's episode, please go ahead and share the link with a friend. Until next week. <laughs>